Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Connor Pope, and this is In the News from the Irish Times, where we take a close look at the stories that matter. Today, the uncomfortable truth about eating meat. Back in 2019, when the then Taoiseach Leo Varadkar said that he was cutting down on red meat because of climate change, he came under heavy and withering attack from farmers and from rural TDs. Act responsibly, please, Taoiseach, and think of the farming community when you're making a comment like that, because it's very, very hurtful. I specifically asked um, what I was doing uh, on climate change, and I said that I was trying to eat uh, less red meat, and for two reasons, uh, one health, uh, the other climate change, not giving it up. Uh, I had a very nice Hereford steak last night. But of course, Leo Varadkar was right. Too much meat is bad for you, and it does contribute to climate change, massively. 14% of all greenhouse gas emissions come from animal farming. One reason for cutting back Varadkar didn't give was the animals themselves. Organisations such as the Irish Farmers Association say Ireland has the highest standards of animal welfare. And maybe we do. But we also kill a lot of animals. In 2019, we killed 1.5 million pigs, 1,700,000 cattle and nearly 3 million sheep. When you throw the damage livestock-based agriculture does to the climate into the mix, should we be asking if it's time for a rethink? The time was right for, for people to think about it. If you look at the polls, people are cutting down on meat. They just need the nudge. And you also need to be told that it's OK. You're not going to be ostracised. You know, your family's not going to disown you. You're going to be happy with what you eat. Henry Mance is the chief features writer with the Financial Times. He's an animal lover and a vegan. In his new book, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World, he explores our relationship with animals and whether the way we use them is ethical or sustainable. Henry, can I start with a simple question that I suspect might have a much more complicated answer? And that's why did you write the book? You're right. It does have um, several answers, very complicated. Um, I mean, what really changed for me was having kids and suddenly, you know, having, you know, liked animals all my life, loved animals... I suddenly found myself surrounded by animals. You know, you've got the storybooks, you've got the teddies, um, got the cartoons on TV. Daddy, what will we see in the countryside? We'll see birds and trees and 
flowers and bees. And for me, it was like, whoa, my kids are getting this idea that not only do we we love animals, but like we're not embarrassed about our relationship with them, that we must have found some kind of way to treat them nicely. And we, I wouldn't be showing these these pictures of like an idyllic farmyard or anything if farming was a, a real sector that we haven't got a grip on. And if we were a bit uncomfortable with the way that we treat livestock, etc. I'd been thinking about this for other reasons, but that was the bit that really consolidated it. And what I loved about writing this book was it allowed me to collect lots of experiences through my life from like going to a zoo as a kid, having a pet dog. And I know lots of people have that relationship with animals that, you know, they go on on holidays and you're desperate to catch sight of a seal or a particular bird. And I just started asking myself, right, so animals have done so much for me. What can what have I done to make their lives any better? What have I done to to make sure that they're still there in 10 years or 20 years? And so it was a kind of process where I could pick up my past and then also develop a way of life that I could hopefully pass on to my daughters. And of course, in the book, you visit a pig farm, you went on a hunting trip and you worked in a slaughterhouse. Why was it important to have those experiences? What, what do you think they brought to the book or what do they what do you think they brought to your life? I mean, I think that there's just such a huge divide between how most people eat meat and then actually what happens in the meat industry. And I think it's important that like you at least take the time and make the effort and see it with your own eyes if you're going to write about it. And obviously not everyone can, you know, I'm not saying that everyone needs to work in an abattoir to come to a, a view on this, but I think it was you know, an important part of the journey for, for me. I mean, I, I think sometimes experiences like that are necessary to, to just to get you to sort of sit up and think about it. At Forge Farm Meats, the pigs come around the line, stunned and hanging from their back legs. I can see how my co-worker makes the final cut. The knife goes into the bottom of the animal's neck and the liquid gushes out as if from a bath tap. If it were not for a team of workers in uniform, this would feel like an act of unforgivable barbarism. As it is, I just feel a little numb, a little less human than when I arrived. Like the sheep, the pigs keep kicking after the cut. Ten seconds, twenty seconds, and longer. They are eventually taken down from their hooks and placed in a bath, and then a roller. They emerge almost hairless, and a brighter shade of pink, as if made of rubber. This book is not an attack in any way on farmers or on people who work in abattoirs. I think they do a fantastic job, often with the best of intentions. And I think for me, it's a question of circularity. It's, you know, the people in the slaughterhouse do their job and do it, you know, under very difficult conditions sometimes because they know that somebody wants to buy that meat and that someone has to provide that job. And farmers will produce um pork or chicken or eggs or beef in a certain way because they know that someone wants to buy it and then we buy it in the supermarket because we say well a farmer's produced it so it must be it must be okay and so there's nobody nobody is is sort of looking at the situation saying is this is this system necessary and is it sustainable and i felt you know having looked at it as a consumer and then you know, having spent a little bit of time in, in the industry, I was able to, to, to form a view, which is that I don't think we can keep on eating meat and, and animal products in, in the way we are. I mean, I think the, the environmental cost is huge. And I also just don't think it fits with how we really want to treat animals. Most of us would prefer not to think about what goes on in a slaughterhouse. And people who eat meat, a lot of people who eat meat probably do so, imagining that the animals are killed as humanely as possible. Was that your experience 
I mean, as possible is the is I think the right way of putting it. Like even in a good slaughterhouse, and I did, I you know I, I didn't go to the the best slaughterhouse. I think is you know is the one that gave me the job was not not the best slaughterhouse. But there's just you can't click your fingers and put animals to sleep without any at the scale we're doing it. You know, and we're um, ki- I mean in this slaughterhouse killing dozens, hundreds of animals a day. You know. Um, across the world, we're killing millions, if not billions, of animals, and you know, just the what we're trying to do at very low cost. It's not like putting your pet to sleep in a vet, and 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 actually, that's one test you can think mm. about. You know, would you be happy for your pet dog to go to a slaughterhouse to be put down? Absolutely not. I think most owners would say, and that gives you a clue of of, of what you might feel about a slaughterhouse. I mean, pigs, especially very sensitive animals, curious. Mm. Um, would like to take their own decisions, like to explore, uh, can probably tell what's going on, can smell the blood. I mean, it's not a pleasurable moment for them towards the end. And I think, you know, as a, I can't wish away, away death and I wouldn't want to wish away, you know, I wouldn't want to come up with an ethic that relies on death not existing, you know, and we can't, we can't pretend that, that those moments don't happen. But I think what we, the way we treat animals in their final moments and also for some parts of their lives on, on big farms is really not acceptable and not consistent with our values. You highlight in the book a lot of serious problems with the whole mass food production system. And you actually went and you worked on a pig farm undercover. And it was a good pig farm because it had all the welfare certification that you might expect. But even on that farm, you saw things that sound pretty horrible. Can you tell me what you saw and what you think people should know about that kind of farming? Yeah, I worked on a pig farm in in Norfolk, and actually a pretty good pig farm. And still, you you do see things that I think make you very uncomfortable. One of my jobs as a stock person outside with the pigs was to gather those piglets who had been uh, lain on and and suffocated and smothered effectively by their their mothers, the sows. And these sows are just so big now; they've been bred for their meat to be such huge sizes and to create such such large litters that they don't really even notice when one or two or three of um, their piglets are suffocated under the straws. So I, I found that um, hard to take, and I also think the sort of the regular cycles of insemination, which are part of our farming system. I mean, you know, a pig will be inseminated when she's six months and then will become worn out and then uh, culled uh, maybe at the age of three. Uh, that, you know, that sort of job that, that people on the farm really didn't like doing was, was saying which of the, the breeding sows was sort of had their productivity dropping off in terms of their, their numbers uh, because these were animals that could have continued to live good lives in another context. But on the farm, they had to be regularly inseminated to, um, to produce more and more piglets i think the really the worst farms are probably chicken farms where you have animals who have been bred for growth for very fast growth a chicken a a meat chicken will will only need about six weeks and the legs simply can't bear it and so you have chickens who can't walk who are in incredible pain who collapse who can't reach their water reach their food um in an intensive chicken farm they won't be able to go outside and I think all of the things that we would find valuable about life, in particular the ability to take our own decisions and decide on our own destiny, I mean, animals, uh, other animals want that ability and on farms they, they can't have it. And so I think it, it's just about realising that, that these are animals like we are and that they have a desire to take their lives into their own hands or their own trotters or their own their wings, as it were, and that 
farming takes away all their decision-making ability and we don't need to do that. In the book, you say one of the most challenging things that you encountered, and this is going to be a direct quote from the book, was not sweeping up sheep innards or picking dead piglets out of straw. It was confronting the cognitive dissonance. People who love animals resist facing the obvious implications. Most of us categorise animals to justify our treatment of them. Some are food, some are pets, and some are majestic wild animals worthy of saving. These categories are nonsense, but we fail to see that. Do we really fail to see that? We just had an outcry in Britain about the the death of Geronimo, uh, an alpaca. At the same time, we're killing 14 million sheep a year. And I sort of, I think there is, and we're not even willing to really discuss whether that's sustainable. And a meat tax is some sort of assault on on our way of life. So I think that is right. I mean, I'm an optimist, so I like believe the world can be slightly better. And I also believe that your personal like example can change the world, you know, by by living in a slightly different way. And I've changed my diet and I can see the sort of ripple effects go out. And I, I really believe that that kind of personal change is powerful. So when I was talking about the most difficult bit, I think what I really do mean is when you meet someone and they say, yeah, you know, I get it. I get this is horrible. And I get that in the dairy industry, I have real problems with a calf being separated from her mother and that being quite brutal. But I love cheese. I find that, yeah, that's that's the difficulty for me because I mm. I look around the world and I see so many things that, you know, so many challenges we face and we we can face them. We, we have technologies, we're amazingly um, inventive. But I think when I hear people just say, you know, I can't face up to my um, my own conclusions. That's I do find that difficult, and I think that comes across the uh, in in lots of instances with our relationship with animals. We just don't follow through. And there's an interesting question here, and you mightn't even have the answer. Why is it that we love some animals like dogs and cats, where but we happily eat other animals such as pigs and octopus? And pigs and octopus, as the book so so carefully explains, are as intelligent as the pets we claim to care for? It's an amazing question. And there are different theories, but there is no conclusive answer. I mean, there, you know, it may be genetic in that we may have... And dog loving is not entirely global. So, you know, it's, it's not evenly spread around the world. Uh, it may be that people who had an affinity for dogs had a particular advantage in passing their genes on. One, one view was that, you know, young women who cared for dogs were seen as potentially much better mothers and therefore were more likely to, to find husbands. I mean, this, these are all theories, they, you know. They would... but, but, but the contrast then was men who liked cats were not seen as attractive mates. <laughs> in a study, yeah, if you pose on your dating profile with a cat, that's not going to help, unfortunately. I, I think that a lot of our behaviour is learnt. And that we're told this is a this is an okay way to behave, and there is some evidence that children are less likely to discriminate between species in the way that we do. And certainly, dogs respond to our cues, and there's a particular relationship that's gone on tens of thousands of years there. But I think we do like to think of ourselves as rational. We do like to think of ourselves doing well for animals. And if you look at the success of My Octopus Teacher, the Netflix film, or um, there have been a couple of pig films out recently, I think we are capable of extending that compassion. Even if we can't have, even if not everyone can keep an octopus as a pet, then I think we can we can say to ourselves, how do we want octopuses to be killed if they're going to be used in the restaurant trade? Do we think it's right to keep octopuses in tanks in farms when we know they're curious animals and that they also don't like being around other octopuses? Probably not. So I think I think it may be a slightly a slight exercise of rationalising rather than feeling that same intense love we feel for dogs and cats. But I think we cap- we're capable of doing that. Coming up, from trophy hunting to veganism, finding a better way to live alongside animals. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's renewed uproar tonight over that hunter who killed Cecil the Lion. American dentist Walter Palmer remains the target of a rising tide of global anger. I think for a lot of people, when they hear certain stories, there's a huge amount of outrage. For instance, Cecil the Lion type viral stories are the image of a rich Western man with a dead elephant. And they're the only times they really think about and feel empathy towards animals and animal cruelty. But in your book, you make the case that hunting is actually not the worst thing we're doing and that we should focus on other things such as habitat loss, climate change and farming. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Cecil the Lion is a, is a fascinating example. Like Part of the reason that Cecil the Lion got such attention was because he had a name, a name that researchers at the University of Oxford who were working in Southern Africa had given him and they'd looked at him. And the idea was that this, this lion had therefore sort of moved out of the wild world into our world and, and, and was something almost akin to a pet. And therefore, how could we possibly take his life? And actually, if you speak to the researchers at that very same group at Oxford University, what they'll say is, you know, trophy hunting can be a way of protecting wild spaces, of giving local communities in Africa who have very little a, an economic incentive for not turning that into farmland. And, you know, the lions might get killed. If you ban hunting, which a lot of people want to do, those same lions may still get killed. They'll just get killed by local people who don't want a lion killing their livestock or don't want the threat of a lion near their, near their homes. So I think it's convenient for a lot of people in the West to get very outraged about hunting which is often a very small number of animals. And there, there is true that it harks back to a very uncomfortable colonial past where old Etonians did wander around Africa just shooting animals for the sake of it in a completely terrible way. But that's not really what hunting has to be. I mean, hunting can be about land management. It can be about putting money into the uh, saving of wild spaces. And of course, you went hunting yourself in Poland. How was that experience? How did it feel holding the gun in your hand? <laughs> I think holding the gun in your hand is slightly pathetic, really, because although you have this great power, you realise it's nothing to do with you. I mean, you're not uh, going out and wrestling with an animal. And so I think those who get this feeling of dominance of the wild, that seems to be very strange. I mean, like, you have not beaten an elephant in a fight if you kill an elephant. But I think I also did feel a connection to the wild and to natural spaces and also a responsibility when I was there. And some of the hunters I met in Poland, which is a group of Swedish hunters, they really did feel that they were protectors of, of nature. 
And they didn't mind if they had if they didn't come back with a kill. And that really changed my perspective because I was used to, yeah, the pictures of these American dentists. Whereas these the Swedish hunters were much mm. more like, if it's right for us to take, if an animal comes, we'll kill the animal. And you can still argue that that's not the right decision and not the right practice. But it's a very different ethic uh, to the one I'd expected. And I, I think there is a role for hunting. I mean, partly because we've eliminated predators like wolves from, and it's impossible to bring back wolves to, to some urban areas, for example. And, and so someone has to play that role. And what, part of the reason I think you can bring beavers back or uh, bring certain animals back in Western Europe and North mm. America is with an understanding that if they become a nuisance or if they become dangerous or if they become too numerous it's possible to hunt them. So the idea that we can't take any animal lives, I think will actually impede rewilding efforts. Of course, there's a bigger picture here. Just how much does our reliance on animals for food damage the planet? Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely huge. Uh, habitat loss is the number one threat to animals species. And agriculture is the number number one component of that. And it's just, we just produce our food in an incredibly inefficient way. I mean, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, but also just in terms of the quantity of land needed. I mean, if you're going to raise one animal to eat that animal rather than eating what that animal is eating in the first place, it's just you're introducing this very big step in the process. And there are lots of statistics out there, but, you know, you're talking, not it's not a close call. It's not one or two percent. It's, you know, it's six or seven times as resource intensive to rely on animal products. And what I hope really is that we can cut down in in countries like, uh, you know, Ireland and the whole of Europe, really, where we're very dependent on animal products, that we can bring our consumption down. And it's already started to level off a little bit. And that we can do that on the understanding that there's only so much you can take from this, this earth. You know, the Mark Twain quote of, you know, by land, they're not, they're not making it anymore is absolutely right. They're, they're just, with the population increasing, with wealth increasing around the world, we have to make some adjustments. And I think... Having young kids, I'm really trying to introduce them to a different diet to the one that I grew up with. Because if not, at some point in their life, they're going to have to adjust because the world mm. just isn't big enough for everybody to eat as much meat as we do now. Is there? I mean, I, I kept looking for uh, an out, uh, something to give me a reason to continue to eat ice cream. And I didn't find it in the book, Henry. Is there any way we can eat meat, cheese, milk, fish ethically and sustainably? Or is it just off the table entirely? I think in the West... Livestock farming has got to a point where there are better ways of, of farming for animal welfare and there are better ways of farming for the environment. And the two are often in contradiction. So if you want to do better by animals and give them a better quality of life, then you give them space to roam. You maybe have uh, breeds that's, that grow uh, slightly slower. You might keep dairy calves with their mums a bit longer. But that actually, that actually increases the amount of land you use. And so some of the most efficient forms of meat production are, for example, uh, chicken farms where the welfare is worse. So, yeah, I think if you if you care about both these things, about welfare and the environment, there is, you know, you're always you're always sacrificing one. But what I would say to people is, look, don't feel you have to do everything or nothing. Just feel Mm. just do what you're comfortable with. And I'm not trying to convince people to love animals. I know people love sharing cat videos. I know that they love their pets. I know that they love seeing wild animals. So just use that as a, as a sort of springboard to just make small changes in your life. And if ice cream is the one thing that you need to keep, or if ice cream and cheese are the things you need to keep, then do that and just feel better about the changes you do make. But, and this is perhaps a very middle class conceit, but would my choice to only buy organic milk or only buy free range corn fed chickens 
is that doing anything for the animal welfare of the chickens or the cows? Or do I have to be much, do I have to go much deeper than that? So there are questions about whether, uh, you know, what organic standards mean and organic standards, I don't think have anything to do with the separation of, of mother and dairy calf. And that's a problem. And I think in some ways, you know, the new thing in agriculture is regenerative agriculture, which is broader than organic standards. And so there are some, some changes going on about exactly how consumers will be made aware of those choices. But if you, if, if you sometimes think there's nothing I can do, I'm just one individual, then I would really urge you to try going vegetarian for a week or two weeks and see the, the conversations it starts in a good way, not in a, not in a what, the, what the hell are you doing kind of way. But, you know, people will often say, oh, yeah, I've been thinking about that too. And I've been looking for a, an instinct. And if we're going out for lunch together, then let's both eat vegetarian food. Or you go around for dinner at someone's house and they'll be absolutely delighted to accommodate that. And, you know, right now there are some really great meat-free burgers, the Impossible Burger and Beyond Burger, which is available. Those, those companies are started by vegans. And so, you know, for me, the fascinating thing is that their personal mm. commitment then becomes a ripple effect that, you know, led, uh, led them to create these businesses, which can now change how everybody's eating. So I really believe that whatever you're doing, if you, if you bring some of those values to work, it, it, will have a, it will have a huge impact beyond your own personal uh, appetite. So in the book, there's a really good quote and it reads, veganism has changed my Christmas much less than the arrival of streaming television has. Veganism can trans transform our lives and the future of the planet. But once you get used to a few recipes, its impact on our lives is barely negligible. But the farmers of Ireland wouldn't think the impact is negligible and farming is ingrained in our culture. So is there any way farming can coexist with the ideology behind veganism? Or are they just completely at odds? It's a, it's a really good question. I know a lot of people out there who come from a farming tradition feel threatened by veganism and they feel that vegans don't understand all of the work and all of the tradition and all of the nutrition that goes into food. And, so, and that's part of why I wanted to go and, and work on farms to, to understand a bit of it. And I only understand a, a thumbnail of it. The land will always be valuable and they'll all, we'll always need farmers to produce food and also to take care of that, that land. And so it's not like the oil industry where you know, oil wells will get to a point where they're stranded assets, I think. You know, obviously, if you have a confinement system for pigs and consumers feel they don't want pigs kept in that way, you may have lost an investment. But the land and the knowledge that goes with it, I think, will never be a lost investment. And there are many farmers out there that I've met who feel uncomfortable with the way their animals are treated, but also feel uncomfortable. They, they, they can see the climate changing better than anyone. They can see the difficulties we're in. And what we need to do is to change the incentives and the subsidies so that there is a, a, a realistic um, income from a broader range of service, uh, services that you're offering for keeping the land in good condition, for storing carbon in forests and grassland. And farmers, I hope, will be a, a huge part of that and a new generation too, because it's been hard getting people into the industry. But once you pitch it as part of the solution to the climate crisis, I think you'll have many more people going into the industry. The book is called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. It's not called, you have to become a vegan or stop eating meat. And that's probably wise if you want to get people to buy the book. <laughs> but in the end, you do say fairly explicitly that people should stop eating meat. Do you think that's a message people want to hear? Uh, no, I don't think people want to hear it. And I didn't want to hear it at one point. And if, you know, what I would just say to people is a few years ago, I thought giving up meat was not for me. 
and two or three years ago, maybe four years ago, I thought veganism was completely extreme. But now it's really become mainstream. You know, like you go to Waitrose or Sainsbury's or Tesco, all of these are announcing lots of uh, vegan ranges in Britain. Greg's has obviously pioneered it. I, I think people are sensitized to the message a bit more now. What I would like to get to, at the moment, we've got maybe 5% of the population gives up meat. I would like to get to a position where 20, 30% of people are, are opting out and then you can get to, to more interesting policy discussions. Because at the moment, the idea of a meat tax, the idea of less meat in schools is, is really a non-starter. But we all know that the livestock industry is unfortunately having an environmental impact which it doesn't pay for. And so once more people start opting out, and so I'm, I'm calling on a group of sort of pioneers, that population that feels uncomfortable with the way that chickens are treated and, and is worried about climate change. If you opt out then it gives politicians a kind of a space to swim in, as an opportunity to, to make bolder policy decisions. So, so, yeah, I know there are a lot of people out there who don't want to hear the message, but I, I think that social media has given us lots of images of animals that we never saw before. And I think that's part of the reason why people think slightly differently now. Ultimately, what do you think our relationship with animals should be? And I'm talking about the animals we have as pets. I'm talking about the animals a lot of people eat. Like, what's our relationship with them looking like in, in, in a perfect world? I think we don't have to fear an animals anymore. I think that's a real difference that's happened in the last couple of centuries. You know, all these stories we have about wolves, you know, are, are based on a, an idea of a, a society where we were scared of animals. So that's, that has gone. I think we also don't want to be dominant over an, other animals. I think we much more want to ex respect their intelligence, respect their emotional lives and their social lives. And I think we want to see ourselves as stewards of the natural world. We don't want to be the generation that lost tigers, that lost elephants, that lost rainforests in the Amazon. And that's certainly not the legacy I want to leave to my kids. Well, I should tell you, Henry, that since I started reading the book, I haven't eaten a scrap of meat. Uh, <laughs> and I feel a little bit better for it. Congratulations. I'm still eating the cheese, though. <laughs> From my cold, dead hands will they take the cheese. Let's do this again in five years. Thanks very much, Henry. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's all for today. In the news, we'll be back on Monday. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 